Darker Days of Dorothy Gale Aftermath For Episode 32 Chapter 27 Anastasius And Canto 11 and 12 Of Dante's Inferno This episode includes discussions of child abuse. If you, or anyone you know, are in need of help, please contact the National Child Abuse Hotline, 1-800-4-A-CHILD, or visit www.childhelp.org. Welcome back to another installment of Tyler Pretends to Know Stuff. Like last week, or the week before, or the week before, or the... Uh, you get the idea. I'm gonna talk about ancient poets, theology, sinners boiling in blood, a grown man and a child's body, a pumpkin man named Jack, bandits, cannibals, and even centaurs. There's a lot of stuff to unpack here, so I suppose I'd better get to it. Enjoy. Or not. That's really up to you. Cantos 11 and 12 are densely packed with a lot of information. Dante and Virgil find themselves at a precipice overlooking the seventh circle of hell. As the kids would say, here's the TLDR. Dante and Virgil come across a sepulcher that entombs Pope Anastasius II. The foul stench of hell causes Virgil to suggest waiting for a moment, so that Dante can get accustomed to it before moving on. While they wait, Virgil explains the intricacies and deliberate design of the underworld. Dante asks why some sins and sinners exist outside of the city of Dis. On the move once more, Dante and Virgil are stopped by a minotaur, Virgil tricks it into a blind rage, and as it thrashes around, the poets are able to sneak past. They arrive at the Phlegathon, a river of boiling blood, guarded by a group of centaurs. Dante hitches a ride on one, because as the old saying goes, when in hell, ride a centaur, I guess. The long version is, well, long, so here we go. In Canto 11, Dante and Virgil come across the sepulcher of Pope Anastasius II. On it is written, I have in charge Pope Anastasius, whom Photinus drew from the right path. The first time I read The Inferno, I was amazed by the fact that Dante, a seemingly devout and medieval Catholic, 
had placed a considerable amount of clergy in the unforgiving landscape of hell. I guess he was nothing if not just. Many consider Anastasius to be a heretic. He was the pope from just 496 to 498, and was one of only two popes, out of the first fifty, to not be canonized as a saint. The history of the Catholic Church is a tangled mess, to say the least, and a lot of modern scholars assume this placement of Pope Anastasius II is actually a mistake. You see, as Pope Anna attempted to heal a schism within the Church, he went to meet a different Anastasius. How a common name like that isn't still hanging around is beyond me. Anyway, Anna the Pope went to see Anna the Byzantine Emperor, sorry if I mispronounced that, in hopes of making things right with the church. One thing led to another, and yada yada yada, Pope A the Second was labeled a heretic. Okay, okay, little bit of clarification needed there. Anna the Emperor was considered by many to be a heretic, so it was more than a little problematic when A to the second power went to meet with him. Then our not-so-beloved Pope gave some dude named Photinus communion, which was a problem because he wasn't really Catholic or wasn't the right kind of Catholic or something. I don't know. I, I'm butchering history. You can go look it up yourself if you are so inclined. Anyway, Dante and Virgil rest here for a moment to catch their breath. Well, not so much to catch their breath, but grow accustomed to the putrid stench of hell. As they rest, Virgil explains the meticulous design of the underworld. There's a lot of exposition here, and it's not exactly adventurous or thrilling, but it does a great job of laying the groundwork for what's to come. He tells Dante that violence is the next stop on the tour, and explains that while violence is one circle, it's actually split into three separate rings, each one smaller than the last. Yeah, I know, making one circle into three rings is kind of a cheat. Like saying, my coat only has two pockets. But really, it has four, because each pocket has a pocket inside of a pocket. Anyways, violence is split into three categories. Violence against people, violence against oneself, and violence against God. The first, against others, is self-explanatory. This is where you find murderers and plunderers. The second circle is also pretty self-explanatory. Violence against oneself. Suicide. This resides further down than violence against others, because life is a gift from God. To kill yourself is to destroy the most personal gift he's given you. The third ring of violence is a little less clear. This is violence against God. This means those who 
defame God. It also includes the usurers and sodomites. Usury isn't a word we hear all that often. If you don't know what it is, like I didn't know when I first read The Inferno, and forgot almost as soon as I was done reading it, it's basically lending money with high interest. Money begets more money. One of my favorite Dante traits? His dislike of bankers. He would hate, and I mean hate, Capital One, or Chase, or Wells Fargo, or, well, really any bank or credit card company, I suppose. He also put sodomites here. Sodomy, by Dante's definition, would be men who have sex with other men. That doesn't necessarily mean they're homosexuals. It just means that they had sex with other men. What a weird time he lived in. Anyway, Dante asks Virgil why violence is more acceptable to God than fraud. Why does Sam Bankman-Fried have it worse than Dahmer? Virgil tells Dante that fraud is worse because it's deceptive and is a uniquely human trait. I don't know, something like that. You know what, instead of me trying to bluff my way through this or trying to make sense of it in my usual convoluted way that probably only really makes sense to me, I'll give you this excerpt from Dante, Money, and the Franciscan Tradition from georgetown.edu. I'll go ahead and put the link in the show notes, so if you want to read more, you can, I guess. They're a pretty stellar resource. Anyway, they say, What the poet opposes most strenuously is the illegal accumulation of money through the practice of usury but also the opulence of the church, which was symptomatic of its political power and corruption. Dante considers usury an unnatural sin of violence against God, when in Inferno he places those who earned money from interest together with the blasphemers, and, quote, those who sinned against nature, unquote. Presumably, but this is never spelled out, the sodomites. The usurers suffer a particularly harsh punishment. You know, years ago I found myself unemployed, and my relentlessly unforgiving banker, Bill Johnson, called me up around Christmas time and said, and I'm quoting here, If you don't pay me, I'll get the money from your dad. I don't even know if he has any money, but I'll get it from him. That wasn't really an accurate impersonation of his voice, 
But that was more or less the tone, and those were the exact words, I promise you. They have stuck with me for a very long time. It's nice to know that when I hung up and hoped he would burn in hell, Dante would have agreed. But more on that pompous asshole of a banker in later chapters. In Canto 12, Dante and Virgil come across a minotaur. Virgil taunts him and drives him into a blind rage. As the creature rages, the travelers are able to sneak past. As they make their way onward, Dante notices the terrain is made up of jagged rocks and appears to be a wasteland. Virgil tells him the last time he traveled through the Inferno, it did not look like this. This landscape was destroyed during the Harrowing. The Harrowing was an event in which Christ came through and rescued certain souls, mainly the virtuous pagans, if I'm not mistaken. They reached the shores of the Phlegathon, a river of boiling blood, guarded by a group of centaurs. This is the first round of violence. Violence against others. Phlegathon is guarded by centaurs, each armed with bows and arrows. Unlike other figures in the Inferno who are quick to anger, the centaurs are slightly more level-headed. They ask the poets what business they have, and Virgil tells them he's only willing to talk to their leader, Chiron. I'm not going to get into the mythology here. You can do that on your own if you feel like it. It's an interesting bit of history and mythology, but this is already getting a little long-winded. Needless to say, Virgil uses some of that ineffable ancient poetic charm of his to hook Dante up with a centaur ride across the river. The river here arcs. It's deep at the beginning and becomes shallow, only to become deeper once more. As they cross, the centaur points out some of the sinners and how justice is doled out to them. The more severe their violence, the deeper they're submerged in the river. The river of boiling blood. I'm sure I mentioned it was boiling blood before, but it's always worth reminding you. As these sinners shed the blood of their fellow man, they must bathe and boil in it for all eternity. Most notably in the deep end, we see Attila the Hun and Alexander presumably the great. Once on the other side of the Phlegathon, they are free to continue to the next ring of violence. Suicide. In chapter 27 of Darker Days of Dorothy Gale, Anastasius, I actually skip a large section of the Inferno, there's no minotaur, no foul stench, no sepulchre, no centaurs, no boiling blood. Instead, I favored something that encompasses the sin of violence against others, instead of the theology and deeper symbolism. 
Here we find Tip, Pumpkin Jack, and the Tree Horse arriving in a town under siege. Tip and Jack take it upon themselves to save the day, going from house to house, dispensing with every evildoer they come across. Eventually, they come to a house full of bandits about to, uh, well, it would seem that they're about to eat some children. You know, boil them up and call them a stew. Hey, 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 I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, good Lord, Tyler, that certainly is dark. But you can't say it's too much, okay? Because when I was a youngin', people used to tell me all about a couple of kids about to be eaten by a witch in a candy house. Anyway, most of this chapter is a long fight sequence between Tip, Jack, and some bandits or marauders or plunderers or whatever you want to call them. I've always considered writing action sequences to be a particularly weak point in my writing abilities. I can picture the action perfectly in my head. I know exactly how it looks and how it sounds. The problem is really in the translation. So, while in my head this action sequence makes perfect sense, I'm not particularly confident that it will actually make sense when it's put on paper, or into a Word document, or recorded into a microphone. The, the, the point is, I hope it all makes sense to you, and I hope it sounds okay. Tip and Jack once again prove to function like a well-oiled killing machine. They have a sense of awareness and the ability to communicate without words. We saw that on full display in their last chapter, Nitfis. And while it is a little less on display here, it's still here. We get to see Pumpkin Jack's ability to be relentless here. My favorite part of this chapter is him flipping the bow outward, catching the bandit's neck with the string, and palming the dude's face like Shaq with a small basketball, forcing him backward into a pot of boiling water. Of course, that's not even the end of it. He proceeds to walk around the pot and push the man down, drowning him in the boiling water. This is a reference to the boiling blood of the Phlegathon. Sure, it's not blood, but it's boiling. I feel at some point boiling water is the same as boiling blood. Like sticking your finger in a scalding hot cup of apple cider is pretty much the same as sticking your finger in a scalding hot cup of coffee. Again, I wasn't necessarily going for theology and symbolism. Just a similar punishment. Also worth noting, Tip has seen quite the change of heart since leaving Mombi. I'm pretty sure I've brought this up before, and I'm probably going to keep reminding you, so you're just, I suppose, going to have to deal with it. But let's take a minute to remember that when he was with Mombi, he was a rapist a torturer, and partial to ritual sacrifice. Now he is all about saving the innocent. 
That being said, there's still a coldness about him. When everything is said and done, the children provided clothing and food, the bad hombres down for the count. Jack asks what they should do about the kids. Tip basically tells him it's, well, none of his concern. Jack disagrees at first, or at least disapproves. Tip explains that the children aren't going to follow anyone they don't trust, and it's going to be a long time before they trust anyone. He also points out that they can't babysit a bunch of kids and continue to roam the countryside, helping those in need. It's a cold logic, but it's a logic nonetheless. Like the children of Anastasius, Tip has been abused. He knows the dangers of the world, and he knows the dangers of trust. Or maybe put in a better way, the fear of trust. He understands trauma and how difficult it can be to get over it. That sometimes you can't get over it, but instead can only coexist with it. Him acknowledging that the kids won't follow who they don't trust and won't trust anyone, even their saviors, is a unique perspective from a character that spent the first third of the book being a monster. It's maybe the most human or the most compassionate moment we've seen from him so far. I guess that really just about wraps this week's episode up, so... You know... If I missed anything or failed to address something you feel I should have or goofed on my summary of Dante's Inferno, which is always a possibility, go ahead and let me know. I'm always open to questions, comments, or constructive criticism. You don't have to like the show. Not sure why you're listening if you don't, but, but like it or not, you can be nice. I know you can. I believe in you. Quick rundown of the ways you can always get in touch with me is Dark Days of Dorothy Gale at Outlook.com, at Dark Dorothy G on Twitter and TikTok, alternately at The Ordinary Sun, that's S U N on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And of course, if social media isn't quite your jam, there's always the official Dark Days website, DD of dg.com. You can always find links to t-shirts and stickers and stuff there as well. Darker Days of Dorothy Gale used to be on Amazon as an ebook and in paperback form. But at the time of this recording, the podcast is the only way to experience it. If you would like to support the show, buying a t-shirt or a sticker or something really is the coolest way to go. If you want to support my specific brand of creativity in a more direct or financial way, you can always find me at buymeacoffee.com slash ordinary sun. Again, that's S-U-N. If you do, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note, complete with a fun little sketch. And if you like... I'll even give you a shout-out on this obscure show. 
If you don't want to donate to this cause, that's fine too. I'm happy to do this either way. So come back next week for Chapter 28, The Dark Wood. Thanks for listening. I love you all.